I'm just going to hit record so I make sure I don't forget. I've never forgotten to hit record yet. Yeah. But every podcaster has done it. Oh, yeah. And so I'm waiting for that time where I have a great interview and something like this. Pack up and realize I, I didn't hit record. It's like um, forgetting to put your landing gear down. You know? <laughs> I, I don't know if I, I don't know if that's quite the same. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody who's got a visual on where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 43, where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot. An officer shot. 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Squadron, the podcast that helps you navigate the challenging terrain of our demanding careers as law enforcement professionals. My name is Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California, and I'm here to help both us learn, you and me, learn the tactics and strategies for taking care of ourselves, our families, and our communities. If this is your first time listening to the show, thanks for stopping by to check us out. And I encourage you to do two things. First is, if you like the episode today, and I guarantee you're going to, because this one is... Uh, Definitely a, a, already a favorite and highlight for me. But if you like the episode today, don't forget to subscribe to the show on the player of your choice. But also, second, go back and check out some of our other amazing guests. We have uh, undercover ATF agent Jay Dobbins, uh, who uh, infiltrated the Hells Angels on episode 75, or former DEA chief James Capra on episode 85, or uh, Scotty Reitz from LAPD SWAT on episode 65, or Tony Horton from P90X on episode 66. Just lots and lots of great stuff uh, in our archives. Uh, before we get to the show, I want to remind you that you get more information on this episode by going to, uh, including the show notes, by going to the squadroom.net. That's our uh, website. And of course, subscribe. I uh, want to thank a new sponsor for of the show today and one that many of you have uh, heard of. A couple of years ago, I was looking for a new duty gun to replace my aging HK that my agency had given me. They were taking a long time to close the deal with our provider or supplier. So I decided to go out and purchase my own Glock Gen 4 G17. I shopped around and I found out about Proforce and their insane prices on firearms and accessories, not just from Glock, but from all the major manufacturers, including Sig, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, HK, Colt, Remington, Springfield, and others. Now, if you're a cop anywhere in Los Angeles or Orange County or even northern San Diego, you already know about Proforce and the amazing deals they have at their store in Brea. Uh, and they are only open to law enforcement, and they're here to serve just us. When they reached out to talk to me about working together, I thought it was a natural fit, and I wanted to learn more about them. So I spent a last, lot of time uh, talking with them recently. And the story about me going out and looking for my own Glock was that uh, Proforce had the best prices for 300 miles in any direction, at least from the shops that I was able to find. They are actually one of the largest firearms distributors in the United States, and because of that, bulk they are able to bring their prices way down they only serve cops you have to be a cop to do anything there and uh 
One of the things that uh, they had used to have a reputation for was the long waits, but they have instituted an appointment system now. So you're in and out of the store as fast as possible. Uh, I've been talking to Mikey over there, their store manager a lot, and their passion for law enforcement is pretty amazing. Uh, they have two retail locations, Orange County, uh, California, and Prescott, Arizona. So if you're near either, make sure you stop in and see their selection. They don't have just firearms. They have holsters and everything to ballistic vests, and they are the largest taser distributor in the Western United States as well. Uh, they've gotten rid of those wait times that I mentioned, uh, and they are really, you are really in and out. Check out the newest deals at ProForceOnline.com. And in fact, if you go into the store in Brea and tell the clerk you heard this ad, you'll get 20% off a Streamlight TLR1 pistol light. That's a huge deal, people. That, that's the, that's the, the TLR one is the one I carry myself and the one I use. And, uh, they're not cheap. So 20% off is a uh, pretty screaming deal. So if you're near the Brea store or the one in Prescott, go in, tell them you heard about them on the squad room, use that secret password, the squad room, and you're going to get 20% off your Streamlight TLR one just as a thank you for listening to the show. Uh, they're really good people over there though. So check them out at ProForce online. Also want to remind you that if you're into Ranger Up clothing, you can get 10% off your order by going to, or by using the, 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 the coupon code, the squad room to get 10% off at Ranger Up and then on it, uh, the on it, uh, on it supplements, on it kettlebells, all of the clothing, all the protein powders. Uh, I love the alpha brain myself. I swear by that stuff. Uh, you go to on it. That's O N N I T.com forward slash the squad room. And you get, uh, I think 15% off your order and it helps the show out. They give us a little support in it, uh, in return. Uh, but like I said, I, I've been using their alpha brain for years. Uh, so those are several quick, couple quick ways you can help support the show. All right. My guest today, uh, man, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, many of you heard him and his interview on Jocko. And, uh, that alone is an amazing experience. And so because that, that episode was so popular and so many of you have heard it. I try not to rehash a lot of the same stuff that's covered in his interview with Jocko. And I try to branch out into new territory. Now that's kind of hard to do because also people haven't heard this, uh, Charlie, Charlie Plum, Captain Charlie Plum on the Jocko podcast. So I do cover some of the same ground, but I really tried to, to push into some new boundaries or some new discussions with him in terms of how his experiences can directly relate to law enforcement and a man with an incredible story. And, and I'll just, I'll go through a portion of it real quick, but also share some insights. I like many of you first heard about captain plum on the Jocko podcast and thought his stories, his insights, his attitude were just so outside the norm of what I would expect for someone who was held in captivity for over five years, tortured daily shot down. Right? So uh, Captain Plum was five days away from returning home after his tour in Vietnam, five days away from being brought home. He was, he had flown 74 combat missions over enemy territory in Vietnam. And five days before he was to be sent home on his 75th mission, he was shot down and, and, and taken prisoner. And he was housed in the famous Hanoi Hilton where he shared cells with Senator John McCain, who was his flight instructor and uh, was part of the group. Uh, if you're a history buff or you know anything about the Vietnam War, part of the group of resistance fighters under Admiral Stockdale 
and uh, and just that experience. The whole experience of being shot down, living in captivity, and then coming out of it stronger, happier, healthier, wiser to me is, is just hard for me to wrap my head around. And so I got to hear him on, on, on Jocko, was struck by him and his grace. Then I got to see him speak in person, and that was quite an experience. Uh, and I uh, even got to introduce my kids to him, which was really, really cool. And then I got to see him speak again, and I brought some of my partners over to, uh, he just happened to be speaking at a uh, Memorial Day event while I was working in my area. And I dragged my whole squad over to go hear him talk, and they thanked me afterwards for doing it. And in that, I learned that he uh, has a has a has an airplane hangar in my jurisdiction, and that he comes up here quite frequently just to fly and tool around and see buddies and and uh, and and basically play with his airplanes. Because at seventy seven years old, give or take, he uh, he still is out there flying. And so uh, reached out, and I've tried over the years to reach out to him in different ways, but this one uh, worked. Reached out. He agreed to meet with me. He invited me up to his uh, his hangar, which uh, is basically just like the coolest man cave I've ever been in. Uh, his hangar is at a small airport. He's got three planes parked downstairs. And then the upstairs is basically like a nice condo, full kitchen, full living room, full bedroom, all that. And it's a museum. It's really a museum to a guy who has experienced so much. Um, as we were talking during this interview, I looked behind me at one point and there was a note to Charlie from President Nixon thanking him for his service. And uh, there was another one next to it from President Ronald Reagan welcoming uh, him home. And the breadth of experience that he brings and then his perspective is just, well, I think it'll shift your own perspective. Uh, I couldn't uh, have... And then we do the interview... He invites me to lunch and I get to spend more time with him and some time with uh, another uh, fellow Vietnam vet uh, from the Army. And uh, really an impactful day for me. Wonderful day. Um, he gave me a copy of his book, I'm No Hero, which I'd already read myself, but he gave me a copy for my kids and my daughter's reading it. And it means something to Charlie that the next generation is learning about their experiences. And... He's definitely serving something bigger than himself, a purpose larger than his own life, which is, I think, what we are trying to do as well in our jobs. And though you may not think that you can learn anything in law enforcement from a Vietnam POW who was an F-4 uh, pilot who was shot down and held captive, you're going to learn a lot in this episode, I think. So please reach out to Charlie on social medias and let him know you heard about him on the show. Uh, let us know or tag me and... And let me know what struck you most about uh, what he has to say here today. So this is a really fascinating conversation. An absolute highlight for me of even just having the podcast in general was getting the chance to spend an, a day with, with Charlie. So here we are, Captain Charlie Plum, Vietnam POW. Uh, here we are on the squad room. Captain Plum, welcome to the squad room. Thank you. Proud I, to be here. Oh, it's an it is uh, an understatement to say that it's an honor. So, uh, well, let me let me toss that right back at you. I have the greatest respect for first responders. You know, I think I I get a lot of kudos and accolades. Thanks for your service, Charlie. You know this kind of thing. But you guys are really out there, uh, tip of the spear on a daily basis. And I really really respect who you guys are and what you do. Mm, well, thank you for that. Um, 
another Naval Academy graduate gave me a great answer to that uh, on on the show, actually. Uh, Clint Bruce, mm-hmm. uh, who was a lieutenant in the SEAL teams. Right. Um, and I loved his answer to that when he says, you're worth it. Uh, you know? That's a isn't great that, answer. That's a great answer oh, when someone got, says thank you for I your got, service. I got a copy of that one. Yeah. So you're I, worth it. I've, st- I've stolen that from him as well. Yeah. And I've, cool. I've said that to some people, and uh, some, you know, citizens, when yeah. they say that. It totally yeah. takes them aback. And, I'm sure. I'm sure it does. Because <laughs> yeah. no, most of the time it's awkward to get that. It is. It is. And when it first happened to me, and I'm sure it's you as well, is you think, well, you know, I'm just doing my job. Mm-hmm. And that's the way most of us feel. You know, and, and uh, we're we're not heroes. We're just out here, you know, trying to uh, trying to serve. Yeah. And uh, and so <laughs> that I'm sure that does um, take. It took me a while, you know, to to recognize that to say thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, proud to have served that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, I think does more for them than it does for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know what I did, yeah, and you know what you do, and 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 we don't really need the accolade, but it's nice to make that connection with people sure. that really appreciate who you are, especially when we we have a divisive uh, calling, you know, or a career, yep. a career. There are people out there that don't like us, obviously, and I understand that. But when the people that take their time to go out of the way to say that they appreciate it, that means it so much more. Yep. I've also at times uh, told people like, "No, thank you. Like, you have no idea what I'm. You're a taxpayer, and." Uh, you pay taxes, which, you know, in large pays my salary and pays mm-hmm. for the equipment and pays for my training. And mm-hmm. no, thank you, because I get to go drive fast and uh, <laughs> shoot guns at training and, and, you know, not sit at a desk all day. So, yeah. no, th- I actually appreciate your com- your yeah, contribution well, to this. Okay. Well, all that being said, thank you yes. for your service, Eric, and, and for all your listeners. Yes. All right. Well, you know, in anticipation of talking to you today um, and and uh, going through again, um, your your episode of Jocko's podcast is probably. Uh, I'm not gonna. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna try not to rehash all of that here because okay. that is such a good um, a work through of your experience in your book. Mm-hmm. But I do want to touch on a little of it because sure. people, some people will not have heard some of that. But anyway, in in listening to that again and going back to your book again and some of your other speeches. It was it was timely that we're having this conversation today for me personally because uh, the idea of a personal code of conduct has been on my mind a lot recently, mm-hmm. and how we identify our values and align those with our beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just something where I have to think that in a POW camp, your personal your personal code of conduct it, it was tested daily, if not hourly, and I was hoping you could talk to that experience, but also explain where your code of conduct came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. It's very deep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my code of conduct, uh, I think like most of our, 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 our mental compass uh, comes early in life. I grew up in a farm town in Kansas uh, with a very uh, strict father and a very loving, forgiving mother. And that combination, I think, sort of established my true north, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you accept that, and my core values and my value system. I, um, I learned a lot of, uh, about discipline from my dad and found that, well, you know, Jocko, uh, Jocko Willink says, um, discipline equals freedom. Mm-hmm. And my father said that in a little different way. My dad's mantra was, um, uh, self-control gives you options. Uh, 
Mm. I didn't. I didn't understand that at the time because when you f- when you think about self control, you think about restriction. You know, I'm, I'm going to do this and I can't do that, and you put yourself in a box with self control. But and it took me years to figure out that he was right and Jocko's right. You know that that if you have a certain discipline, if you have a certain way of life, if you have a certain routine, uh, that gives you the comfort zone and the confidence of getting outside and being free. And so dad taught me discipline. My mother taught me forgiveness. You know, my mother, uh, she died three years ago, but I would put her against Mother Teresa. You know, she was just a, just a wonderful person in the, in the 74 years, three years that I knew her, I never, ever heard her say a bad word about anybody. She never criticized anybody, mm-hmm. e- even her kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she, she just had this air of forgiveness. And, uh, and, 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 and so it, both of those, you know, both of those disciplines um, that my parents taught me sort of formulated, I think, my code of conduct from the beginning. Now, jumping in the military, uh, I was 17, never seen the ocean, never ridden in an airplane, hayseed from Kansas, <laughs> never been out of the four states of Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, uh, trotted off to, got on a Greyhound bus, as a matter of fact, and two days later, I was pledging to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and, and so, I, you know, then I learned the military code. The, the the code of conduct that the military military lays on you, uh, you know, again a certain number of disciplines that you try your best to um, uh, to adhere to. Okay, j- fast forward then six years later, uh, and I'm a I'm a jet fighter pilot and uh, flying combat missions for Vietnam, shot down in the prison camp, and I remember. At the time, uh, you know, in, in, in the prison camps, um, wondering about this personal code and the code of conduct. And I, I, after a couple of days of the torture, and I'm, you know, laying on that dirt floor with my blood making mud out of the dirt, um, just misery and pain. I mean, just unbelievable um, uh, treatment. And I, I remember being very uh, despondent, even guilty, because I had, I, I, I had not held to my code. You know, I, I had not lived up to my personal code or my code of conduct. How was that? Well, first of all, code of conduct in the military says name, rank, serial number, date of birth. That's, that's what you're supposed to give to the enemy if you're captured. All right. And everybody in the military knows that's 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 your personal code it's not a law you know it, it it's a code uh unlike ucmj the military laws um there you know there, there are different definitions of this code of conduct but that's what it says is that if i am captured i'm to give only name rank serial number date of birth and i flew the skies of vietnam thinking that i was strong enough to stick by that code and my own personal code of self-discipline and, and forgiveness. And my, my mom would always say to us, I have uh, two brothers and a sister, 
And mom would say, you know, every event in your life will be good news and bad news. And it's like a puzzle. She'd say, you have to figure it out. You have to find the good part of the experience. Okay, so there I am laying in a prison uh, cell. Every cell in my body hurt. I mean, I couldn't, I could not blink my eyes without something hurting in my body. I was bleeding from four open wounds, no medical care, uh, very little food, very little water, just misery and pain. And that was the good news. The bad news was my mental state. I, I, I'd given up. I'd given them more than name, rank, show number, date of birth. And I felt very guilty about that, guilty about leaving the code, right? And my personal code, I had not been disciplined, uh, uh, and I hated the enemy. I had not, not followed my mother's pattern of forgiveness. And, uh, and, and so I felt just really, uh, really down, really low. And I'm not the only one. You know, years later, talking to other prisoners of war, they had that the very same feelings. In fact, some of the guys told me that they even thought of suicide because they had failed so miserably. And how can I go back and face my family? You know, my, my, my fellow fighter pilots, my, how, how can I ever admit to the people I love that, that I have failed in my mission and that my, that, that, that my code had bubble had burst mm-hmm. and that I hadn't been as strong as I wanted to be. And so, so that's the way I was, was feeling. Well, um, enter a guy by the name of Bob Shoemaker. Bob had been a prisoner of war uh, when I was shot down. He'd been there for two years. He was one of the long, he was the second longest held prisoner of war over eight years in a prison camp. And he had a cell that was um, not next to mine, but it was on the other side of a storeroom. The, uh, the storeroom was, well, these were little eight foot by eight foot cells. In the storeroom was eight by eight, but it had a, a three foot uh, thick wall on each side of the storeroom, and so it was a total total of fourteen feet. He had passed a wire through a hole in his cell wall across this storeroom, over the boxes and around the shovels and through the ropes and into the little hole in my cell wall, fourteen feet away, just to communicate with me. Okay, uh, and he passed a note written on a piece of toilet paper in ink made from ashes and brick dust. And he, you get very creative, you know, when you don't have anything else to do in the prison camp. And he'd pass that note uh, on this wire to me, and I learned the code, and we started to communicate. And uh, and he saved my life, you know. I, I don't remember ever thinking about suicide, but I was on a downhill slope uh, mentally, mm-hmm. you know. I... Uh, I was surviving physically uh, because I was in pretty good shape um, when I went into that situation. But mentally, I I'd given up, and um, I, and 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 that that frightened me just to know that that my you know my personal code had been broken, and um, you know one of the advantage of knowing a little bit of history was that I knew a lot about the Korean War and the prisoners of war there. And I knew that about a third of the prisoners of war in Korea died, not because they were executed or not because of disease, uh, but because they just crawled over in the corner of the prison cell and assumed the fetal position and gave up and died. 
that, that, that that's how they died. And I knew that. And it frightened me to death to think that I was on the verge of giving up and this, this self-fulfilling, this self-fulfilling prophecy of, um, uh, uh, of giving up was tantamount to atrophy and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I remember being very frightened. Okay. So enter Bob Shoemaker, pass the wire through the, 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 the hole in the wall and across the storeroom and, <clears throat> And um, and we started to communicate, and his his basic his basic input was, "Hey, um, pull up your big boy pants. There's no whining in this prison camp, you know." <laughs> he said, "You know, because I'm, you know, I'm 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 laying it on him. I'm said, you know, Bob, I I gotta confess to you something, then." When I tell you what I've done, I, you may not want to communicate with me, and I'll understand. Because if our roles were reversed, and you had done what I did, I wouldn't want to talk to you either. He said, what'd you do, plumber? I said, I broke. You know, I, I failed in my mission. I spilled my guts. He said, hell, everybody broke. He said, there's not a man in this prison camp who's as strong as he wanted to be. He said, we got a war to fight, and we expect you to to spend the, your last dying breath fighting this enemy. And so he, he said, Shoemaker said, you have just joined the finest team you'll ever play on, the prisoners of war in Vietnam. He said, you will find the best leadership you will ever see, bar none. Our leaders can't see us. They can't talk to us. They can't pull our liberty card. They, they can't restrict us. They can't promote us. They can't entice us in any way. And yet they're turning this thing around. He said, we are not on the defensive. Now that hit me, you know. I'm looking around this eight-foot by eight-foot prison cell, you know, with the rats and the bugs and, <laughs> and the dirt and looking at my four open wounds and scabbing over. And I'm saying, I'm not on the defensive, huh? <laughs> So, and then my mom's words came back to me, son, you know, every event in life has got positive and negative. So it's, a, it's like a puzzle, you know, go, go, go find the positive part of this. And so I, I set, I set to work to try to prove my mother's words. Um, she, your mom was a very religious person and, um, and, and one of the, one of the Bible verses that she used to uh to validate her philosophy was uh Romans 8:28 all things work together for good to those that love the lord and i think wait a minute all things work together for good and i'm again looking at myself and my wounds and i was beginning to develop these boils uh we never knew why but every POW shot down uh the first summer we developed these carbuncles big boils all over our body. So many, I couldn't count them all. So many on my face, I couldn't see through the boils, just mm. those swollen boils on my face. And um, I thought to myself, you know, <laughs> something good can come from this. And so I spent the next six years in that prison camp proving my mom and, 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 and this Bible verse was right, that, uh, that, that you know, that in every, in every situation in life, you know, bar none, um, there's good news and bad news. So that that's the key. 
But to, long answer to your short question, um, I, you know, I questioned, I, I questioned my, uh, my moral code and the code of conduct. And, uh, and it, it took me, um, really f- several months before I really realized that, yes, um, it, yeah, I, I have fallen away from the code, but oh, by the way, it's like a compass, man. I got to get back on track. Like flying airplanes, you know, it's, uh, I, I fly my little airplane from here to Colorado nonstop. It's a, it's a neat little experimental airplane. It's very efficient. And, um, and I get my GPS out and I know my heading. And I also know that within minutes I'll be off heading. I'll be off altitude. And that's okay as long as I'm correcting. And, uh, sort of the same way I think with your moral compass is, uh, yeah, you, you get off course. We all get off course. And, uh, but the key is to make the correction and, and, and recognize what the course is. What do you think is your, do you have a first step when you notice you're off course or, or in that situation where you were, where you think, okay, is there a step one? Yeah, you got great questions. <laughs> um, well, first of all, is to recognize you're off course. You know, I think exactly the um, I think the the biggest mistake you can make is to try to convince yourself that, hey, I'm still on course. No big deal. Okay, you know, so so I had a drink and I'm 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 an alcoholic You know, one little drink's not going to make any difference. You know, so I cheated on my wife one time, one one night stand. That's not going to make a difference. And so I think the the key is that self-awareness that you talk about and um and and know thyself and uh, and know when you start to to defer know when you start to 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 make those excuses know when you start to um uh, to lose sight of the objective and start to to justify your your you know your 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 off course um uh, direction yeah those justifications then and uh, list, listening to those and catching them, right? I, I do that where you hear, I, I can hear myself talk inside my own head, justify something and go, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not right. And sometimes they slip. Sometimes it slips oh, yeah. through. Oh, yeah. You know, daily basis, uh, th- these things slip through. I think, you know, you talked about this feeling of, of guilt and remorse about violating the code and how you wouldn't be able to come home. I see that, I think, uh, on a, on, the, on a different scale, but just in how I think a lot of people are, uh, frustrated with themselves or unhappy or struggling in life because they violated their code. They know it, mm-hmm. but they're not willing to do that first course correction or they don't know where to start. Yeah. And they end up just these miserable people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, again, the self-awareness and the discipline that it takes to, to make that course correction. But you're absolutely right. And, um, and I obviously see it in other people. I'm sure you see it in cops as well as you know the good guys and 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 they they know what's right and what's wrong it's just that there's so many shades of gray and this self-talk thing you know you can you can just about talk yourself out of or into about anything you know that's the mental process mm-hmm. uh, and um and and to stick and to stick with the baseline uh stick with what you you know what brought you here Stick with your, with your conscience and 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 your background and and uh, your you know, your foundation, 
if you can stick with those things, I, I memorize a lot of things and, 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 and I, and I really believe in, in, in memorizing stuff, silly, well, not so silly stuff, but, but some of the stuff that drove me a, 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 along uh, the path in, in the prison camp was stuff like the, the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. Okay, why are we here? Why do we, why do we have uh, this culture that we have? Well, it's because, of, you know, a bunch of guys uh, wrote this thing up, and, and it was revolutionary at the time. It was a revolution. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and then, you know, Gettysburg Address. I, 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 can, I can recite the Gettysburg Address. And uh, and and I thought about that a lot um, in in the prison camp and various prayers that I the the midshipman prayer at the Naval Academy at the time uh, I went to the Naval Academy uh, the chapel was compulsory we marched to the, the the big chapel in the middle of the the campus there the yard at the Naval Academy and and we had to memorize the midshipman prayer. And part of the midshipman prayer is, um, if I am tempted, make me strong to resist. Um, if I should miss the mark, give me the courage to try again. Hmm. And uh, boy, that you know, those those two lines of that prayer just kept coming back to me over and over, and still does today. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so if you have, you know, if you have some words like that in in the back of your mind give me if i if i should miss the mark give me the courage to try again and it kind of you know it just kind of makes you feel like well you know this is possible you know i don't i don't have to go down this road um give me the courage god to try this again i'm gonna i'm gonna learn from this experience and i'm gonna make it better next time i like that i love that line and it's uh, we just did a whole episode on the idea that, you know, it's not, failure's okay. That's what right. that line is saying. Failure's yep. okay. It's only quitting. Yep. It's only done when you quit. That's right. Try again. Yep. When you got this message from Bob that you were, he was basically telling you to, you know, <laughs> uh, buck up, buck up, and, <laughs> buck up, cowboy. And, uh, and, you know, you got to, you got a war to fight. You, you eventually came out of that whole, I mean, I, there's a picture in your book that describes the the, the some of the torture you went under, mm-hmm. and some of it. I mean, an em- yeah. emphasis on some. Yeah. And I had to, um, when I first saw it, was shocked, and then, uh, in again preparation for today, went back to look at it again, and I still had to kind of r- look at it to figure out how that was even anatomically possible to put someone's human body into that position. I got to tell you, when you go through it, you can't believe <laughs> that I remember. You know, first of all, that that you know, uh, elbows together behind your back. Try that to begin with. And they they like touching. Oh yeah, yeah. They're they're touching. Your your uh, your wrists are in manacles, uh, and these are real tight. It's, it's not like a handcuff that you guys use. It's a manacle, mm-hmm. and it's built for the Vietnamese. Okay, and they had much smaller wrists <laughs> than we did, yeah. and so it first of all bites into your skin. I still have some scars from those manacles. And then they put a, a line from your ankles that are in shackles and run the line over your shoulder and back down to your wrist. And then they tighten up. They put a stick of bamboo in this, in this, um, uh, in this line, this rope, and, and twist it and tighten them up. So I remember looking up and seeing my wrists backwards 
uh, above my head. And, and and again, like you look at the picture in the book, you say, yeah. hey, how can a guy get in that situation? And I'm living it, and I'm thinking, how can I get in this <laughs> situation? This, this isn't right. This <laughs> Anatomically, this does not figure. It's supposed to point that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But to come out of something like that and, and continually have those situations, but you eventually figuratively get back on your feet mentally yeah. and decide that you're you're in this fight. Yep. And I just see that um, correlation to law enforcement so clearly that you have. I mean, we talk about the will to survive when we're in a gunfight or we're in a fight for our life that a lot of cops die because, like you said, of a... Um, some of the people, the POWs, they, they curl up and give up. Mm-hmm. And we see that in our profession as well. Sure. And then we see that in the long-term aspect of the guys who die from early uh, early heart attacks or PTSD mm-hmm. or, or suicide, those sorts of things. Because, again, they, they've they kind of abdicated their own ownership of their, of their, of their role they have to play in their own life. And I just... I think that's a, everything you've talked about, though it's obviously on a lesser scale. I see how it relates to the challenges of a career, a 20, 30 year career in law enforcement and, and in all of the first responder professions. Absolutely. And while I fully admit that my experience may be a little more dramatic, you know, than the average day cop, uh, it, it, it's really the perception of what's around you that, that's, that's the same. You know, the, um, you know, the, um, the fright, the, the, um, lack of, of, of understanding, uh, of how we're going to get through this, the, um, uh, the, the feelings of inadequacy, you know, I think that can kill you. If you, if you, if you approach a situation, you think, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this, you know, I don't know if I can make this. And then letting yourself talk believe that yeah maybe it's better to leave the force maybe it's better to back away from that that car stop maybe it's you know may, maybe i need to to do something different in life uh and, and and so to me while while my experience was more dramatic than than a lot of experiences there's a lot of very similarity between the response that we all have to those kind of surroundings. But I want to talk about PTSD because I know that that, you know, that that's prevalent in cops as it is in most military guys. Mm-hmm. And here's a statistic for you, which is uh, pretty unbelievable. Uh, a study was done of all the, the Vietnam POWs uh, and, and of all of the combatants, okay? Several million guys and gals were exposed to that war. It was a long war. 30.6% of the combatants of Vietnam have PTSD. Nearly a third of the prisoners of war, 4% of us have PTSD. Mm. And it's mostly the guys that were shot down near the end of the war and were only in a prison camp for a few weeks or a month or two. And in, in fact, there's sort of a new program uh, that, that, that we're sort of the, we're sort of the poster boys for this uh, program and it's called PTG post-traumatic growth mm. and a couple of psychologists and psychiatrists uh, came up with this saying and it's being proven by uh, uh, by a couple of, uh, of organizations that work with veterans uh, 
uh, uh, one of them is called Boulder Crest, and Boulder Crest is a, is a camp out in Virginia, and we just opened another one in Arizona. The whole idea is that a, a stressful situation can actually uh, be productive, be constructive. And, and, and we all know this, you know, I mean, this, sure. this is historic. You know, you look at that, that some of the major people in history went through an awful lot of stress and strain to get to where they are. And I think the same thing happens, uh, you know, in first responders is that you go through the fire and you have more confidence in meeting the next fire. Uh, and so, and so these challenges in life bring, bring on resilience. Uh, one, one of my, uh, one of my mantras, you know, when I'm speaking, I, I, I speak a lot. I speak a lot to, a lot, uh, to first responder organization, you know, cops and sheriffs and those guys and gals. And one of my mantras is, uh, adversity is a horrible thing to waste. And the whole point of that is that once you are in a stressful situation, you really have a choice and it can make you bitter and it make you better. And back to my mother's words, <laughs> uh, the puzzle is figuring out how to respond to the situation so that it does become a, a positive feature. You know, it does, it does enhance your code, your personal code of conduct mm-hmm. rather than deter from it. And, uh, and, and so anyway, this, uh, this PTG philosophy is, is catching on. And in fact, we just, uh, proposed a bill in Congress to, uh, to expand this into the VA mm. because the VA doesn't do a very good job of, of veterans with PTSD. And a lot of them come back with that. And the VA, uh, there, I don't know, it's the bureaucracy, um, some of the folks in the VA wanted me to help in the suicide problem that we have in the military. And I said, sure, you know, I'll be happy to, you know, I'd I'd love to help out if I can. And and so they, they sent me like a 10 page form. You know, you have to go through this form before we can actually sign you on. And the first question was, where's your PhD from? <laughs> I said, man, you know, you're you're talking about a nose picking fighter pilot. I don't have a PhD. <laughs> uh, I can fly airplanes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so they said, well, thanks, but no thanks. You know, you you just you don't have the education that we really need to, to contribute to this program. Assumption being that formal education is where they need the yeah. experience. Yeah. And so, but we're laying this PTG thing on them and. Uh, if it passes Congress, we, you know, we think that that's going to be a, a real asset uh, to veterans that come back with these kind of challenges because it, it, is, it is really true. And, and, and I feel like I am living proof mm-hmm. that you can go through a stressful situation and gain from it. You know, you actually can pick out the positive parts of any and, and, and not just military law enforcement and yeah, not it's, it's not just the firefighting it's anything in life you know you you have a you know you have a an argument with a spouse you know you have a, a wayward kid you, you know you, you 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 don't get promoted or you, you lose your job or all of these things i think we see uh and internalize as negative situations uh, and yet, if you can start out 
thinking of it more positively. Here's another interesting study that was done, not, uh, I think three or four years ago. They took, uh, I've forgotten the number, 30,000 people, a bunch of people uh, in their late stages in life, um, you know, uh, I don't know, 60, 70 years old, and, uh, and asked them the question, uh, how does stress affect you? And most of them said, oh, man, it's, you know, it's debilitating. It, it causes uh, all kinds of diseases and heart attacks and, and high blood pressure and, and uh, all these problems. And, and, but some of the people in the study said, no, no, that's not true. You know, stress is what drives me forward. It gives me adrenaline and strength. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the function that creates superstar Olympic athletes. And uh, so they studied these folks for eight years and um, about, I don't know, I've forgotten now, 15 or 20 percent of them had died. Mostly the people who thought stress was negative were the ones that died. Mm -hmm. And so my, you know, my feeble understanding of that is it's not the stress that's killed you. It's your attitude towards the stress Mm -hmm. that kills you. Mm -hmm. And if you can approach a stressful situation with this idea that, hey, yeah, this is going to be tough. This may be painful. You know, this is going to take some work. Um, and, but, you know, if I do this right, you know, if, I, if I apply the basic principles of this, I can actually come out more confident, uh, happier, more self-assured, um, live longer, happier, if I approach the stress as a, a positive feature instead of a negative one. So where do you think the the line is then? Because uh, kind of conversely to that, I've heard you say that it was the optimists in the camps that really struggled the most. And, and maybe, so is it just, it, is there a difference? You don't want to be negative, obviously, and we just went through why you don't want to do that, but... The flip side of that is you don't want to go too far to the other spectrum too, right? So there's a, it's more of a realist, I guess, and accepting conditions as they are. Very a very good point. You have to be realistic about the whole situation. And that optimist thing came from a, a book called Good to Great. And it was a an interview with Jim Stockdale, one of our great leaders in that prison camp. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, Oh, I've forgotten the author's name, Jim. Uh, Jim Collins. Collins, yeah. He <clears throat> quoted Stockdale as saying it was the optimist that died. <clears throat> well, when I read that, I I uh, I called Jim Collins. I was really surprised the guy answered his phone. You know, he was in <laughs> he was in Colorado, and I said, you know, I I, I take a little exception to uh, to this Stockdale syndrome that you've come up with in your in your book, Good to Great. I said I feel like I was an optimist and. Um, and, he, and, and Jim said, no, no, that's, that's what Stockdale told me. Well, at the time, Jim Stockdale was still alive, and he was living in San Diego, and I, was, uh, I went down there and, and had lunch with him. Hey, Jim, you know, what do you mean by this, CAG? <clears throat> we call him CAG, Commander of the Air Group. And um, he said, well, he said, the, the point is that you can, you can positively think your way out of reality. You know, mm. I mean, you can get this, you know, high and mighty um, lather yourself up with all these positive attitudes and lose lose track of what's really going on. He said, and um, he said, and, and, and that's what I meant by the book, uh, by the, the quote in the book is that, um, yes, you can say home by Christmas, home by Christmas, home by Christmas. 
And then when you're not home by Christmas, you're very depressed. And he said, but you guys, and he was, see, I was his communications officer in the prison camp, so I got to know him pretty well. He said, you guys that, you know, were kind of following my pattern would say home by Christmas, home by Christmas. When you weren't home by Christmas, it was uh, home by Groundhog's Day and home by Easter and then home by the 4th of July and home by Thanksgiving. And you, you, you kept resetting the goal for yourself. And so he said, and he used to tell us in the prison camp, you know, he would, <clears throat> he, he was our leader and he would write these notes on, and again, on pieces of toilet paper or whatever he could find. And, uh, and he wrote really small and, uh, uh, and he would sit around these epistles and he was a, he was a great philosopher, just unbelievable. And he would, uh, you know, in, in the epistles, um, he would say, uh, Hey guys, here's the reality. Uh, we're in trouble. Uh, this is painful. Um, we, um, we're hurting here, you know, we're, we're being tortured. Uh, we're not being fed well. We have no medical care. That's the reality. Okay. Here also is the reality. All right. We can do this. We can make it through this. We can survive. Uh, if we stick together and apply the basics in life back to, back to your code, your moral code, (laughs) if we apply the foundation that brought us here, we will emerge from this better men than we, when we came in. Mm-hmm. And that was his philosophy, and that turned it around. <clears throat> and, but, and, and, but, but, he, but that was his point was, hey, don't positively think your way out of reality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's easily done. And you know, I'm a motivational speaker. This is what I do for a living. And I see other guys and gals on this circuit that, come up with all this pie in the sky you know um all you have to do is think positive and it's all going to work out well i believe in positive thinking but i also believe in reality (laughs) and and sometimes it doesn't work out right away Mm -hmm. you know but i am convinced that if you you know if you approach it with that self-actual you know this 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 self-understanding know thyself and then Uh, apply the basics that eventually uh, positive things will happen. Earlier I told you about ProForce and ProForce Online and their individual officer sales and their stores in Brea and Prescott, Arizona. But I want to let you know, if you're in charge of maintaining and replacing your agency's firearms, your ballistics vests, any of the equipment, ballistic panels in your doors, anything that you need as an agency, if you're in charge of acquisition for those projects, or you have a hand in that decision-making process, I want you to pay close attention uh, to this ad here for a minute. This episode is brought to you by ProForce, the largest firearms distributor uh, on the West Coast and the only taser distributor in the West. ProForce is known amongst Southern California and Arizona cops for the great deals on firearms and holsters and accessories. But what a lot of people don't know is that they're also uh, a large agency distributor, and they're responsible for firearms procurement for some of the largest departments in the United States. Their business is helping agencies replace their aging firearms, their ballistic vests, other equipment with modern equipment at the best prices available. They've tackled massive replacement programs and also have a buyback program for officers that helps them hold on to a firearm that means a lot to them. After 18 years in business, ProForce knows how to help agencies navigate all the challenges that come from transitioning to a new firearm. 
And believe me, as someone who has an agency that just went through this, there are plenty. If your agency's firearms are at the point where they need to be replaced or your ballistic vests or any of those other large dollar purchases and you have a say in the process, you really should check out ProForce. I'm confident that you'll get a great customer service and a fantastic price on any of the major brands out there. They've helped agencies transition to everything from Smith & Wesson and M&P, the Sig Sauer P320, the Glock 17, and every model in between. Also, don't forget about your long guns because they carry Remington, Colt, and many others. Check them out at ProForceOnline.com or call their sales department at 1-800-367-5855. Or you can even email them. Email them at sales at ProForce Online. And they'll hook you up with a free, no pressure, no obligation quote. Just make sure that you told them that you heard about them on the squadron. All right, back to this interview with Captain Plum. I've found that to be true in my own career. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, smaller <laughs> scale. But that anticipation for me, those anticipations of a promotion mm -hmm. or of a transfer to us, an assignment you want, you know, oh, it's going to happen this p next pay period. No, or, well, next month or, okay, I didn't get it this one, but I bet I'm the next person, you know, and then that disappointment that comes from that yep, uh, is, is just shooting yourself in the foot. Yep. And it took a while for me to realize you just have to accept the fact that things are the way they are. It's tough. And you've done, and, and to me, the, the key has been always, did I do as much as I could to get myself in the best position I could be in? And then, then I can't hold any grudge against myself as a result. No question. And, and I think that's an excellent point is that self-analysis, you know, that um, I see so many people get into so much trouble blaming other people for their problems and say, yeah, I didn't get that promotion, but those assholes that were writing the fitness reports on me, you know, they're the ones uh, that, that didn't know what they were doing, you know. Mm -hmm. We get into a situation, that was my spouse, you know, was, she was the reason I failed. <clears throat> or uh, anything, you know, it was the weather, you know, it was the bad guys, it was uh, the, the, the regulations, the government, you know, uh, the leadership. And we, and we blame all these folks for our problems. It's only when you realize that, hey, here's what I can control. You know, I can always control my response to whatever's around me. I may not be able to control that promotion, you know, or that new assignment. I mean, I'd be able to control, you know, the bad guys that hide in that house. But what I can control is my response to that. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, that, if you can keep that in mind, it's not easy to do, you no. know, it, no. but if you can keep that in mind and make that your, your, your pattern, you know, your habit, uh, your, your, your way of life uh, and fall back on that, that, Hey, Here's what I can control. Here's what I can't. You know, I'm going to work with what I've got. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when you talk about Vice Admiral Stockdale yeah. there about uh, the epistles that he was sending out and that philosophy because he was very big on stoicism. Oh, yeah. Which goes into, that's exactly what he was, he was prophesizing to you guys there was, um, was that stoic idea of, of acceptance and then acknowledgement, but then look for the opportunities. And uh, that's really interesting that he would do that. Was he, he seems like such an interesting character and, and um, personality to begin with. But he, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he, he was a, a really an interesting guy. And uh, Epictetus was his hero. And this is a Greek slave that, that, that turned into, you know, made a big deal out of, um, uh, out of his stoicism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's who Stockdale followed. And he, he knew this, this Greek um, like a like a father, and he just followed him all along. But but that was 
you know, that was then, and this is now, and you and you find a, a lot of our younger generation, and I, I hate to even use that word, but the millennials don't believe in stoicism. You know, they, they, a lot of them believe that they are, you know, they should be rewarded and taken care of, and and they they they, they don't want to, they don't want to really believe that there is um, a way to be strong. And, um, and, and it kind of bothers me sometimes the direction of our society is that we're afraid of this, that we're, we're afraid to be strong. You know, we, we, we want to be pampered. Um, but, but yeah, Stockdale was one of a kind. And, uh, you know, I, I, I spoke last week at uh, the Naval Academy in Annapolis and, uh, I went out there to, to speak to one of the, one of the dinners and they have a whole wing of one of their uh, buildings uh, called the Stockdale Institute, and uh, it's primarily around the ethics of uh, a resilience and the ethics of stoicism, mm-hmm. and how that those ethical principles um, take care of you. You know, mm-hmm. w- especially when you're in trouble. What I thought was interesting about him was that he was into uh, Epictetus and stoicism prior to becoming yeah, a POW, oh, yeah. so he had this base of knowledge about it. It wasn't something he found after the fact or found in ca- in camp that he then used. He had this base of knowledge that was then really put to the test, and this was the ultimate challenge for something like that. And persevered and showed that it is in fact the I, I think the path for succeeding in something like that. Uh, I think you're absolutely right, and we were so fortunate that he had that background. Um, he was older than than most of us. He was one of the older uh, POWs when he came in. I was 24 when I was shot down. I think he was 30, in his mid-30s. An old guy to you. An old guy. Oh, yeah, old guy. Um, but he, I think, I think that whole situation just validated um, his stoicism, you know, uh, and, 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 and taught us all, you know, he, he, he gave this all to us, and I got to tell you that when he first came up with this <laughs> this this character uh, Epictetus, I I I'd, I'd never heard of him. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about Stoicism or Greek philosophy or or resilience or anything else. You know, I'm just I'm just a happy-go-lucky fighter pilot. I'm just you know enjoying flying airplanes and <laughs> living your dream, living my dream. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and then he comes up with all this stuff, and it took a while. You know it. it I got to tell you, when when Shoemaker first, on, on, on the end of that wire, when Shoemaker said to me, hey, you know, um, we, you know we're going to survive this because we're going to stick together. And we got this rule, these rules, you know, that our leadership have come up with. And I'm like, rules, you know, I'm in, a, <laughs> I'm in an eight foot by eight foot prison cell. Um, uh, you know, I'm down 115 pounds. I've got four open wounds, no medical care. and and now the brass down in the end cell in this, this this cell block have come up with more stuff for me to do. You know what are they going to do? You know, pull my liberty card. Right. <laughs> what are they going to send me to Vietnam? Put or, you in the brig. Like exactly. You said. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and I was I was very resistant, as most of us were at the time. We couldn't believe, you know, we couldn't believe that they were imposing a further discipline on us. Mm-hmm. And um, it took a while. It took a while to figure that out and and to realize that, you know, we, we gained a lot of strength and, and, and we gained power mm-hmm. uh, against the enemy 
through our unity. And it probably sounds pretty silly, but it meant a lot to us to have just a little bit of, of, of control. Something. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I, you know, I mean, we were just really thrilled. We went on a hunger strike once and, and we just thrilled, just absolutely thrilled to see them back down. Um, and it was all kind of silliness to think about it today. But at the time, boy, that was just a major, major uh, achievement. And, again, the validation of uh, leadership, good leadership, uh, a, 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 um, a, a, different, a different definition of our purpose. Uh, one, of, one of the things that drove us there was their their use their uh, of the prisoners of war was to uh, was to make us communists. You know, Ho Chi Minh from the very beginning said, "We're going to take these Americans. We're going to retrain them. We're going to send them back to the United States as good communists, so we you know we can change their government and save the world okay. by making the United States communists." And, and 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 this was his public announcement. And so, you know, we had. The speakers in our every cell had a speaker would blab out this communist drivel day and night, and uh, we'd have these interviews, you know, with these English speakers who would and and they 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 played all the radio broadcasts of the anti-war element in the United States and how they were winning the the, the war of thoughts and and minds of Americans and and all this crap that that they were feeding us, and so so Stockdale. And and the other leadership in that camp um, decided this is this is our new mission. You know, we are going to thwart their attempt to use us as tools of their communist ideology. And so we and and guys were being tortured to make statements. You know, on the uh, on the radio uh, or uh, to tape these things to send to the anti-war senators in the United States or to write confessions. We were being tortured to, to say that the treatment was good and everything was wonderful in communism, terrible in capitalism. And so our, our new mission in life, you know, was to deny their efforts at this propaganda. And so one of the, one of the rules I remember that, uh, that Stockdale came up with is when, when they take you to the torture room, um, take, that torture until you feel like you're going to be permanently disabled from the torture. When it hurts that bad, then start to lie to them, make up stuff, you know, uh, and, and until the torture is gone. And then when they send you back to your prison cell, get on the wall. That was one of his premises. Get on the wall. That meant start communicating with everybody else and tell them exactly what you said, tell them exactly what you went through, and, and, and so collectively, you know, we can, we can unify and fight this problem. <clears throat> and, 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 and it worked. Um, it, it, it brought us together in ways that uh, it, it, you know, again, as I, as I say this, uh, in today's world, you think, well, that's really silly. Why not just tell them what they want? You know, everybody knows that prisoners of war don't tell the truth. You know, we're being pressured into these things nobody believes what you're going to say anyway and and that thought came came to me but but the end result wasn't really that we denied any of their propaganda they did that anyway it wasn't really that we changed the direction of the war 
but we gave ourselves the you know the confidence through this discipline that made us better when we came back you know it it allowed us to survive because we felt like we had a purpose yeah you know there was a there was a reason a purpose even in a situation like that yep you know you, you taught you mentioned generational and the millennials and and that sort of thing and to me i think um purpose is such a big part of that and it's almost a uh keyword now or a buzzword finding your purpose but it it is so true and i think you know we go through each generation wondering where the uh you know where 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 are we going to go or where are we going with this next generation and i found with the with the younger people that i work with cuz you know i'm a supervisor so i uh often run squads of just all millennials mm-hmm. and for some time had uh kind of chuckled under my breath about some of the the, the little things more of the behavioral things but i found that when you explain their purpose or you engage their purpose, um, it's a generation much like yours that is uh, self-starting and off to the races. Mm-hmm. The minute they understand why, what what role they're going to play mm-hmm. in the team. And it's lucky for me in law enforcement I f- and any supervisor in law enforcement should have an easy time explaining to any one of our deputies or our officers what our purpose is, right? Because on any given day, there's five or six good purposes to be out there, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, bringing some relief and uh, uh, to a stressful situation or removing a dangerous person from a situation or just being uh, out there in public and seen by the soccer mom driving her kids to school and she knows that we're there to be there in case she needs us. Those are all great things that go towards that purpose of that job we do. And... I feel very fortunate that I'm in a job that my purpose is so clear to me. Mm. You know, I was in a, I was in the music industry before this uh-huh. for eight years uh-huh. and I loved it. And it's a great job in your early twenties to be hanging out with rock stars and, and around New York city and all that. But I didn't understand my purpose in that job. Where was I going? Yeah. And I, I struggled. Like I always talk about how I never slept well in that job. Mm-hmm. It was always sort of uh discombobulated, I guess is yeah. one way to say it. And then when I came into this job and I moved through the academy and I moved on the street, I don't have a problem sleeping. Interesting. And I think a lot of that is because I know why I'm here now, right? So you talk about purpose. What do you teach people these days about how to find theirs? I, 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 folk, I tell folks, find your passion, mm-hmm. you know, because your passion in life is probably going to uh, is, is be very closely associated with your purpose. And in fact, if you have a purpose without a passion, <clears throat> um, the purpose is is going to fall short. So find you know find your niche. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I think in in law enforcement and in, in first responding, it's it's really easy to find that purpose. <clears throat> when I work with corporations, it's interesting that I I do I, I, I'm doing a series of videos for. Um, uh, for a company that has uh, outpatient clinics around the country. They've got like 250 outpatient clinics. And and so they have core values. They have six core values. And so every month I do a video, which is a short three to five uh, minute video on each of their core values. And, uh, and, and I'm kind of an action junkie and, and you know, I... I I ride mountain bikes and I sail and I fly. Launch and, fighter jets off of aircraft. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta stay active. And so, 
you know, one of one of the uh, one of the core values is integrity. Well, I love integrity. I, you know, I think that's really very important. So, uh, we take a sailing trip in in the um, in the British Virgin Islands every year. It's a family vacation, and we take two boats. These are big fifty foot catamaran boats, and my son commands one, and I command the other, and we chase ourselves around the Caribbean. <clears throat> and so, so in this video, in this one of the videos that I did for this company it was on integrity. And I said, you know, take a look at this this knot at the end of this line, all right? What's the, what's the purpose of this knot? Okay, well, it holds something together. Okay, let, let, let's talk about how important the integrity of this knot is and the people who tied the knot. Because if if somebody is just nonchalant and just wraps this, this line around the cleat and, uh, and, and it does not hold, it is not secure, it does not have integrity, you may lose not only your your ship but you may lose some of your crewmen you know this is this can be dangerous stuff if that knot does not hold same way with integrity in life and it's not just a little bit of your integrity integrity it's it's not like that you can you know say a little white one now and then to get promoted or or to, to be better liked it's all of your integrity it's every knot on this ship has to be tied with integrity and so anyway it's kind of a fun thing um, you know, to talk about the core values of a corporation and uh, and how those core values and that mission statement that they have, just like first responders, you know, it's a very defined mission. It's it, just like in the military. Mm-hmm. There's not a there's not a question in your mind after you've been through boot camp, you know, <laughs> what you're supposed to be doing, what is expected of you, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a beautiful thing, and. And and I see organizations and you know corporations and well about every schools uh, churches about everything in life you know and they don't emphasize this they don't emphasize the purpose the mission statement and and you said that so well and I'm really happy that you guys and gals emphasize that I think that's one of the primarily primary responsibilities of leadership is to ingrain in every follower that mission statement that purpose why are we here and every day you know in the squad rooms you know every day those messages should be on the walls it should be in the lips of of everybody that talks to you it it should be ingrained you know in the minds and the hearts of of every cop and every fireman yeah absolutely i think you know, as as a frontline supervisor, I do my my best most of the time yep. <laughs> to to help my guys see that and see their purpose and why. The challenge I think becomes either going laterally mm-hmm. to our to our to a similar rank, or even up, or the harder part is <laughs> yeah. up, right? Yeah. And and you know, I, I I wonder how much of your success in the camp or your collective success as a group in the camp was because you had Stockdale and not someone who was willing to, to roll over and, and just curl up in the ball. And I'm sure you've thought about that. Absolutely. Well, and I lived it. You know, uh, Stockdale was shot down as a commander. Now, he had, uh, he had um, uh, been promoted to captain but hadn't pinned him on. So he officially was a, a commander. And like I said, that's what we did. We, we compared ranks. Well, over the years, uh, and he was there for nearly seven years, and over the years, uh, pilots would be shot down and out outrank him, mm-hmm. okay? And some of those guys, unfortunately, were the type that, that would not take command, you know? They just wanted to ride out the war, and because 
to take command in a prison camp meant that you were going to be tortured first. Okay, they were going to come to you first. You would be restricted. Well, the guy who had the record for solitary confinement, um, four and a half years, was Jeremiah Denton. Uh, he's the guy that that blinked out torture, you know, on 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 one of the videotapes that he made. Hmm. Later became an, an admiral and a senator, and and he was a great guy. <clears throat> but uh, and he was a great leader in the prison camp. But some of the guys who who followed the old timers that outranked the old timers were not the kind of guys, you know, that could take command. And believe, but. In several cases, I observed, of course, I was a very junior guy, very happy to be very junior because <laughs> there were only a couple of cases that I really did need to, to step up. But um, in several cases, the new guy would come and realize that he wasn't the guy and would actually abdicate his role, his position as the senior residing officer to Stockdale or Denton. Or even John McCain. Um, uh, and and I, I, I've got a little off course for your question. Your question was, how do you, you know, how do you um, show, um, how do you prove these principles uh, upward? You know, how do you take go to your supervisor and say, hey, uh, yes, you talk a big story, but by the way, you're not living the code. You know, when uh, when my cops you know, see you out there, um, you know, having a beer uh, when you're on duty, that, that that's not part of our code. How do, you, how do you say that to a person? Well, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think the, the first thing that I tried to do, and, I, and I've tried to do this all my life when I was, you know, more junior, was to demonstrate and make it very obvious to the senior leadership that I wasn't going to have a beer with them, mm-hmm. you know, that I wasn't going to, um, it, uh, I wasn't going to tell the public um, lies to try to make it easier for me. I wasn't going to take the easy path. Mm-hmm. And if you demonstrate that, I think, to the senior leadership that, hey, there are certain principles uh, that I adhered to and I hope everybody adhered to. But from my from my point on down, you know, as a sergeant, to my my people will adhere to these principles regardless of whether you do or not. Mm. And sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes it never works <laughs> that the leadership comes, comes to realize that, no, you know, this is the way that we should be doing this. But some of those leaders who came in who outranked Stockdale, some didn't want anything to do with the leadership. Did some others acknowledge that he was the more appropriate person for the job? Yes. Because that takes a lot of strength, too. Yep. To, and, and a unique skill set to say, you know, I may be the most senior person here, I may be the oldest, etc., but I'm not the most appropriate fit for this situation, and I'm going to turn it over. That takes real leadership. It does, and but it, but it came pretty obvious to most of them. Now, some of them resisted, but most of the guys who were who were shot down saw that Stockdale had in place this organization, this fine, finely. Uh, run machine uh and and it was see in our in our secret communication and it was unbelievable the way we could communicate with the other guys in the prison camp uh and 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 stockdale could make one 
announcement. You know, or he, he would tap on the wall or tug on a wire to me. I was his communication officer and I would spread this in, in, in you know, in five different ways. Um, if a guy was outside chopping wood for a fire, for instance, he would chop in this code, mm-hmm. this tap code, chop, 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 chop. And he would be spelling out the directions of Stockdale. And so in a, in an instant, uh, well, not an instant, but in, in, a, in a day, everybody in that camp would start doing something different, you know. We, we had these levels of resistance. The first level of resistance is refusing to bow to the guards. Every time you saw a guard, if he came to your, your, your door and opened the flap and, and hollered at you, you were to jump to your feet and go to the door and bow to this guard. Or if you outside emptying your, your bucket, you know, in the sewer, uh, and you saw a guard or any, any, any Vietnamese, uh, you had to bow. And so Stockdale would put out the word. And, uh, and I would disseminate the word. Okay. Resistance level one. Tomorrow morning at daybreak, nobody bows to a guard. Now, as I say this, it, it sounds kind of silly, but first of all, it scared them to death to know that we were communicating. We weren't supposed to be communicating and, and they were naive enough to think that we weren't. And secondly, that we had that power. And with that kind of coordination, and with that kind of of uh, of influence, they felt like you know what's next. You know what, what do these guys do? What, you know because, because level six was a, a riot. You know it was the, a breakout, mm. and uh, we never got to that point, luckily, because they would have shot a bunch of guys dead. But but the point was that through through our communication system and our leadership and um, uh, and, and, and the way that we were unified, we gained a great deal of power. Again, I'm not answering your question. You're quite, you know, your no, question was, was um, okay, uh, you know, what about the guys that didn't want to take command? And, and, and there were um, a, a number of times. But they understood that Stockdale had in place such a well-oiled machine, you know, such a system that was working. Mm-hmm. And once they saw that this system was working, and and that Stockdale, of course, had several years of experience at, at being a prisoner of war, mm-hmm. you know, that these guys didn't have. And, man, I mean, I got to tell you, when you're first shot down, you are, I mean, you're in, you're in shock, you know, for the first several weeks. You really, you can't figure out, hey, what the heck is going on here? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the leadership knew what was going on. So it was fairly easy for these new guys that outranked Stockdale to abdicate uh, the, the leadership role. It's really a testament to, to, to yeah. strong leadership yeah. when they do that and they Absolutely. acknowledge that. You know, one of the things I think that um, another kind of commonality between the two, and I was thinking of this is, you know, it took a lot of people to put you in the air, right? I mean, you go through the Naval Academy and it's your instructor. Well, we could all, of course, go all the way back to your parents and raising you, but your Naval Academy instructors and your flight instructors, one of whom was John McCain. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting person to learn from, I imagine, and we could do a whole. <laughs> yeah, we could do another one on John. A lot on John, <laughs> yeah. another fascinating individual, and uh, uh, you know, and then you get on the uh, USS Kitty Hawk, and it's you have the people on the deck who are helping you, and you have the people in the ship who are who are prepping your plane for flight, and you and the people who drive. I don't even the drive the ship that you are on that launches your aircraft. 
I, I relate that to the idea that it takes a team to put a single law enforcement officer out on the street as well. And uh, also how important it is for us to build our personal teams, you know, a group of people around you that support you, guide you, uh, maybe even take care of you physically, uh, medical doctors or physical therapists or that sort of stuff. But, you know, we have people with us in our lives who put us out on the street and we, you know, we go through an academy, we have academy instructors, and then we have our field training officers that, that train us out on the street and teach us how to do things and our supervisors we have the people who order our uniforms and the people who, you know, manage the cars, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking of this again in anticipation of today and this, this relationship that we, we both had teams that put us, out, put us out to our respective jobs. And the day you got shot down in that F4 Phantom, the guy who became really important on your team was the guy who packed your parachute. And uh, I'd love for you to tell us that story uh about that and what that means to you today. Sure. Several years after I came home, uh, I was in a restaurant in Kansas City where I was living at the time. And um, I, I noticed a, a fellow sitting at a table halfway across the room and he, our eyes, you know, kept meeting and I didn't recognize him, but I felt that he probably recognized me. He came over <laughs> to my table, pointed at me and said, you're Captain Plum. I said, yes, sir, I'm Captain Plum. Uh, you're that guy. You you flew jet fighters in Vietnam off the, off the Kitty Hawk aircraft carrier. I said, yeah, I did. He said, uh, you were shot down on the 19th of May, 1967, parachuted in enemy hands. You were tortured and spent nearly six years in a prison camp. I said, how in the world did you know all that? He says, he says I'm the guy that packed your parachute. <laughs> well, I was dumbfounded. You know, <laughs> what do you say to that? I staggered to my feet. Reach out a, reached out a very grateful hand of thanks, and he grabbed my hand, shook my 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 arm, and and smiled and said, "I guess it worked." <laughs> <laughs> well, the tradition in the Navy at the time was any any time you used a parachute, you found the rigger, the guy that packed the parachute, and buy him a bottle of booze. And so, I I said, "It's been a long time coming, but I owe you, big guy." And so. Uh, we spent the next couple of hours uh, philosophizing, and he was a very humble guy, and said, you know, he said, I, I'm not the only guy that packed your parachute. He said, uh, yeah, I, I, I did the physical part. You know, I, I unfolded the shrouds and, and uh, the panels of your parachute, but, you know, how about, how about your, your psychological parachute how about your spiritual parachute how about your mental parachute all these things were done for you early in life it's your mom and your dad and your teachers and preachers and coaches and those are the folks that that actually allowed you to survive you know i just i just allowed you to get into that situation but the survival part were the other folks that packed your parachute and so it gave me pause to for for thought that we go through life, you know, assuming that we're self-made, you know, and that, hey, I'm the guy and, you know, I'm, yeah, look at me, look at my stripes and uh, look what I've been through. And yet in reality, you're absolutely right. It was the 5,000 men on that ship. <clears throat> they were all men at the time. Uh, it was the 5,000 men that flipped the hamburgers and uh, cut my hair and ran the little TV station on the ship. And uh, all of those people um, were the ones that, that allowed me to do what I was doing. 
And, and, and in fact, I, I felt a little guilty when this guy showed up and thought to myself, you know, I was a Top Gun fighter pilot. Man, I, I zoomed around the sky at 1,400 miles an hour, you know, just 24 years old and in command of this multi-gazillion dollar airplane. And, 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 and I was the reason why all those guys were on that ship, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I felt guilty because I thought to myself, how many times may, might I have passed that guy in the, in the passageway of that ship and never said, hello, how are you? Kiss my foot. And, you know, never engaged in the guy that would end up saving my life. And, and, and I think, you know, I think you're right. I think the analogy in first responders is the same. We, yeah, we're out there making the headlines. And, oh, by the way, you know, the ones that are, you know, saving the kids from the burning buildings and, and uh, you know, running, running towards the danger instead of away from it. Uh, and yet, uh, there are an awful lot of people that work awfully hard putting us in our positions. You know, it's the dispatchers. It's the trainers. It's, it's the organizers. It's the... It's the taxpayers. It's it's the politicians. You know, it's it's everybody in in our society that have to come together to even put us on the street. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you know, I think you're right. I, I think that we have to be humble, even when we're you know on on the nightly news as having saved the lives. You know, we have to kind of throw the the bouquet back to to the people that really. Uh, made it possible for us to even do our job. How do you do that now? Um, well, you know, I think it's a, again, it's sort of an attitude of, of, of gratefulness. Uh, it's an attitude of, um, of forgiveness. Uh, it's an attitude of, um, um, of, of humility. And, you know, that, that's something that we don't think about a lot in, in law enforcement and firefighting and in the military is humility. But to me, that goes an awful long way uh, towards being the person that you want to be. You know, we think of a sergeant as being the guy that's out there, you know, making the rules and and uh, disciplining the, all the men and, and all this. But, but I'm convinced that if you don't, ha- if you aren't, if you aren't, if you don't start out as a humble person and realize that, you know, you're not you're not the only ball game. You know, you're not the only kid on the street. That you got to where you are because a lot of other people gave their blood, sweat, and tears for uh, for you and what you do. And 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 that's another reason why I really believe in in history. You know, I think you have to know that the founding fathers gave their their lives for you know to create this this scenario. You know, this this wonderful culture that that allow you and me to to not just survive but thrive it's it's unlike any place on earth uh and you have to think you know we're standing on the shoulders of those original guys and everybody in uniform that's ever fought in the war kept the streets safe or put out a fire in a burning building you know uh we're on the shoulders of these people that that allow us to the freedom to do what we do. I think that's a fantastic point. And you, you talk about that quite a bit about um, the need for faith and belief in something and not, mm-hmm. it, it, you talk about it in a religious or spiritual sense, but also in that idea of the, 
the context of the nation or in what you're doing. And I think for us, it's, I think that's like that in any high stakes environment or in the situation. And, you know, for us, I think it's important to keep some, it's sometimes hard to keep, but have faith in our, our justice system mm-hmm. and our role in it, but also our, but also to have faith in, in confining ourselves to the role of the police and not also the judge and jury. Uh, and so that, that's something interesting to me too. And, and that has to be so frustrating for you guys, you know, to, to see this, uh, Jesse, Vallette, that, that, that kind of thing mm-hmm. where the cops in Chicago did their job perfectly, you know, I mean, they did everything. And then to have some judge just negate everything. And I'm sure you see this, you know, probably on a weekly basis where, you know, you caught the bad guy and he's obviously the bad guy, but oh, by the way, you know, he's innocent <laughs> until he's proven <laughs> guilty. And that has to be hard for you guys to accept sometimes. It is absolutely. And, uh, I, I wish it got easier as you went along and there was yeah. just acceptance, but it, it, if you're not careful, it becomes more, um, you're, you're, you're proving your case mm-hmm. all the time in the sense of, you know, the, the DA is blow, uh, dropped my cases and while well, they did another one and see, they're not doing anything. And, yeah. and that's not true, obviously, but the feeling is certainly there. You have a, you have a good case and the secret of all cops, it's like, <laughs> my, my wife had to go to jury duty recently and they, yeah put her on the stand and they asked her if she knows any cops and she said, yeah, I'm married to one. And, uh, and, uh, they asked her, do you think you could still be impartial? And she said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why? And he said, cause he, cause he comes home and tells me stories and I'm convinced that if they've made an arrest, they've done good work and that person is guilty. And so if they're sitting in your courtroom, I can't think that there's, that they're, uh, innocent. Now that's good for her to be honest about that. We don't want to have a prejudicial jury. Um, but I think anyone who works around law enforcement officers probably feels that same way. And we certainly do. You know, I, I, I would be, it'd be impossible for me to be unbiased on a, on a jury anymore. <laughs> I told you from the, from the beginning what respect and admiration uh, I have for you guys. You know, I, I, I truly am humbled by the stuff that you do. And to me, that, boy, that, that would just be a game changer for me. If, if I worked awfully hard and risked my life, you know, to, to arrest a guy and then just, have have them just set him free just you know turn him loose mm-hmm. and and here he comes again you know i, I may i may be in a, in a gunfight with this guy again and uh and boy i just i i respect you guys running in there the to me the justification you know to all of this is hey long over the long haul the system works you know the whole idea that we're innocent until we're proven guilty is the right idea. Yes, yes. And even after you have totally proven, the grand jury is out, you know. I mean, there's the, the major case against this guy. He is still innocent. Mm-hmm. And um, and so even though I think once in a while the bad guy slips by, overall, you know, you guys doing your job out there, uh, 99% of the time, uh, the system is working. I think so. And I think you're right that the presumption of innocence is, is very important uh, because if you came in with my presumption as the reporting <laughs> yeah. party, it would be skewed. You would not get a fair trial. Well, that's true. So yeah, you that's... need to compartmentalize my role in the larger system because I have information, knowledge, suspicion, uh, prior training, uh, pattern recognition that I have that the general public doesn't have that would certainly skew some of that. Yep. Um, it's a, it's a, 
there isn't a better system out there. You know, very true. Uh, it's just working within it sometimes is the same as banging your head against the wall. Yep. Yeah. Well, and there are flaws. You know, obviously we we know all that. Uh, but within you know w- within the system, while it's not perfect, it's uh, beats the hell out of whatever second best. Right. Know? And you saw some of that in Vietnam. Yep. I wanted to wrap up by talking a little bit about legacy. Okay. Um, it's something that with two kids is important to me. And I actually wanted to show you this photo. I was going to okay. show you before we start. But, oh, great. So this is us, <laughs> you and me, and my daughter and son. This is at a Memorial Day service yep. uh, that you spoke at, yep. at a cemetery here in town. Yep. Uh, fantastic service. And yep. I had already heard uh, heard of you and was aware of you. And wanted to bring my kids. I didn't know you were speaking at this. So uh-huh. this is so I brought my kids to the service. To, yeah, that's a great uh, shot. Can you see me that picture? I would be happy. That's to. wonderful. Uh, I brought my kids to the service just because I, it was important for me to for them to be at a service on that day. Yep, and to acknowledge that. Good for you. But then when the I forget who introduced you, but someone started to talk about the bio of the person who was going to speak next, and I thought, oh, is it Captain? I think Captain. I think I bet it's Captain Plum. Mm-hmm. And they introduced you, you, you stood up, you gave a great talk. Um, one of the two times I've been able to see you give a talk in person. And anyway, so I was excited. My daughter saw how excited I was and like, yeah. you know, kids, listen, listen, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you know, she's uh, eight in that photo, I think. So right. she's not quite grasping, but she sees dad's excited. So yeah. we get this photo and, and I appreciated your, your time and your, you were very, very, uh, Engage with my son too, which is great. So, I, I show you this picture though because when you confirmed that you were able to do this interview with me, I told my daughter, "Hey, remember, uh, remember the captain we saw gave the speech and you took the photo and I showed her this photo." She goes, "Oh yeah, 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 I remember that. Uh, he's he's gonna come on the show. He's gonna talk to me." And she thought that was the coolest thing. And she's so excited. And she starts asking questions. Well, what was it? Why did you want to talk to him again? Well, this was his experience. And he was in Vietnam and he was shot down in POW. Six years. Yeah, six years. And, and uh, now he comes out and he's speaking. And so she's engaged now in your mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And she's excited to hear now that you're going to be on this show. And so over the last week or so, she's been talking, Dad, are you, is today the day you're going to go interview Captain Plum? <laughs> like, no, sweetie, it's not. That'll be next week. And so this morning, um, got up and was working with the kids. And she knew today was, was the day we were going to meet up. And she was excited. And she said, Dad, today's the day you get to interview Captain Plum. I go, I know. I can't believe it either. So like, Aren't you excited? Like, yes, I'm excited. This is going to be fantastic. And so she's engaging your story. So I, I tell all of that to get to the point, to point out to you in the rare possibility that you forgot about the legacy and impact that you are leaving mm-hmm. and the lessons that I have learned, but that you've taught to other people are, are continuing on. And you now have a now 10 year old girl and a now seven year old boy who are very engaged in your story Wonderful. because you took an opportunity to meet with them, take a photo, chat with them, and, and we're lucky enough to see you mm-hmm. speak. How much of your day-to-day activities or your effort or your mindset is towards that legacy and leaving something beyond you for a purpose greater than yourself? Well, um, first of all, let me let me tell you, pro- 
it, it increases as I get older. Okay, yeah. is that uh, as I near the end of my runway, uh, I I feel like yes, I I I can touch the hearts and minds of people. Uh, on a daily basis, especially when I'm in, in front of a, of a crowd and, and eyeball to eyeball. Uh, but what happens, you know, in the next, you know, how, how many years I have left, 10 or 15 or 20, <clears throat> uh, what happens then? And so I think a lot about that legacy issue uh, because I, I, you know, I, I believe in what I say. I believe in what I do. I believe in the, the principles that I say from the stage. Uh, but how how does that continue? Because, you know, I mean, in all, in all honestly, we, we forget really quickly mm-hmm. the, the people. And so, so I do all I can to influence folks and, and try to put as much down in, you know, in writing and on tape and that kind of thing that, and, you know, in, in organizations, uh, in schools where they, well, like the Naval Academy that, that's, that shows my tapes and, mm-hmm. And I go back and I speak at the Naval Academy, uh, you know, every couple of years. And uh, the way that I try to impact young people in uh, in schools and colleges. And so, yeah, it, it, legacy is important to me. It's not something that I uh, focus on intentionally because I think the people that try to create legacies sometimes go overboard. Mm. And it becomes this, uh, look at me, see what I did. You know, you you need to be more like me. Yeah. And that, that, to me, that's not the legacy. The legacy is just explaining my life story. And this this is not going to be your life story. You know that you you you're not you're not going to be in a prison cell for nearly six years. Um, but you're going to have those challenges. You know, you're going to have those times where you doubt yourself. You're going to have those times when you're when you fail at at, at your uh, at your code. And, uh, you know, by the way, when that happens, then I hope you'll remember some of the things that I said. And, uh, and so to me, that's the legacy. Uh, I, 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 uh, I'm going to give your, uh, your kids a copy of my book. I'll autograph a book. Uh, I think I have one here, uh, that I'd like for them to have. And, I'd appreciate uh, so, that. Sure. You bet. But, uh, you know, I am at the point now where I have grandkids. I have, uh, four, I have four kids and three grandkids and, uh, they're, they're still five and under. And so uh, to me, I try my best to, um, to leave my legacy through my family, you know, if I can. Uh, and so I visit, you know, two of them are in Seattle and one of them's in Lawton, Oklahoma. That's a, a Marine Corps major, uh, I married my daughter. And so they have a little boy. Uh, and so I, I uh, FaceTime with them, uh, as much as I can. I, I read books to them through Skype and FaceTime and, and then I visit them, uh, at least every two or three months. Mm. And, uh, and so uh, I, you know, I, I, I try to my, my best to set the example and through that example, I hope will, uh, will come the legacy. The family is your legacy. The family. Yeah. Sir, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Appreciate I appreciate that. Let me let me give you my website. Yes, in, yeah. We in want case uh, people want to know more about who I am, charlieplum.com. And it's C H A R L I E P L U M B dot com. And uh, I answer all my emails myself. I autograph every book that anybody uh, orders, uh, you know, from my website. And uh, and so I I try to be out there and, and try to be uh, transparent. And I, I you know, truly want to be of service to anybody who, who needs my help.
Well, sir, I, I, I certainly think you've done that. And you're on socials too, right? Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and all we'll, the works. We'll put the links to all of your, your websites, some of your videos, uh, your socials. We'll put that all in the show notes as well. So people Great. can go to the squadroom.net to this episode and it'll all be there for them too. Thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Thank Appreciate you. the job you do. Wow, that's very kind of you. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of The Squadron with Captain Charlie Plum. Now, I often at the end of these shows talk about how our guests and what they have to say relates to our badges. Not just the ones on our chest, of course, but our badges, our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service. And so in prepping for today and and trying to answer this question, I almost avoided answering it because it was so all-encompassing, right? And we talk about our beliefs and why we're here and are we willing to be the one, right? And are we willing to fight for what we believe in and what is our why? And Charlie was able to identify and articulate all of those to himself so early on that he never wavered in his actions. His actions supported his beliefs and vice versa. And he executed on those actions so that he was in alignment with his beliefs. And, and, and of course, those things in an environment like being in a POW camp, the amount of discipline required to maintain those beliefs and the discipline not to let yourself slide into negativity and into uh, a pity party, all those things, that takes immense discipline in order to keep your beliefs and actions in alignment like that. And then his goals, I thought it's really interesting that his goal wasn't to look forward to being home. It was looking forward to getting the most out of the experience that he could, whether it was a torturous experience and a negative experience or a positive experience or, or, or gaining the most ground on the enemy that he possibly could. He never got out of the fight. And it's just like our will to survive when we're in the middle of something. He never got out of the fight and his emotions and dealing with the negativity and the trauma and the PTS potential PTS of those things, but he talks about, you know, they left healthier than the average combat vet. And I think it's because they knew they had a purpose uh, by being there and their emotional survival. Those are such, that's such a buzzword these days in law enforcement, but their ability to identify the emotional survival needs early was really, really impactful. And of course, service is pretty much goes without saying with someone like Charlie, you know, he was serving he was serving his country, of course, but then he looked for ways to serve his fellow POWs. And when he got out, he started by serving, or he, he, he continued serving, I mean, uh, in different ways and serves to pass those lessons down to people like me who are lucky enough to hear it. And he gets as much by serving and telling those stories and, and, and pushing that message forward as he ever as, as, as anybody could ever imagine, I guess, you know, it's just, it, it kind of blows me away. I mean, here we have beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, service. I've had amazing guests on this show and I don't know if I've had one who has encompassed all of them as fully as Captain Plum has. Something to think about. If you want to know how you can support the show, here's a few ways to do that. If you like this episode, you can go to thesquadroom.net and you can forward this episode to somebody directly from the website. You can share it on social medias, scroll to the bottom of the post and just uh, hit the Facebook or Instagram tag right there and you can share it uh, right there. 
Uh, if you know someone who needs to hear this episode, please just tell them about the show. You can leave a rating on the uh, player of your choice. That really helps us. Uh, and, uh, of course, follow Charlie on social media and let him know you heard about him here. If you're shopping at Ranger Up, you can go to rangerup.com. Don't forget to use that coupon code, the squad room for 10% off your order. Another way is if you're looking for, uh, an awesome ballistic helmet, uh, nice to see that people are kind of coming around to the idea that a ballistic helmet is as important as a ballistic vest. I firmly believe that. Hardhead Veterans has been a sponsor of the show for a long time. And a lot of my partners are out there buying uh, Hardhead Veterans helmets for themselves. If you go to hardheadveterans.com and use the coupon code SQUADROOM, you get $20 off your helmet. They really make the, the really nice fitting helmet. I've had mine for over a year now, and it's just fantastic. I also want to thank ProForce, of course, for their support of the show. You can go to ProForceOnline.com and uh, check out what they their deals and their firearm deals. If you're in Brea, stop by the store, say hi. You can tell them the password, the squad room, and you get 20% off that Streamlight TLR1 uh, pistol light as well. Uh, you know, I want to say also, of course, you can follow me on social medias at the squad room and on our Facebook group. But... Wanted to say, uh, if 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 something strike if something has struck you out of this conversation with Charlie today, or something is impactful for you, give me an email. I want to know, I want to know what really hit home for people on this. And I do read all the emails that come in. And sometimes I'm slow to respond because I might be pulled into work or something. But I do read everything. Uh, shoot me an email, Garrett Two R's Two T's at the dot net. And also, speaking of emails. You can sign up on our mailing list by going to our website as well and signing up through the mail. Uh, well, the mail. <laughs> I'm done talking. Sign up for our mailing list that way too. All right. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.